Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of the flagship show on member-supported Restoration Radio. I'm your guest host, Mario Dirksen, and if you think this voice sounds familiar, you are probably correct. But don't worry, this is not a trap cast. This is Restoration Radio. Bam! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and our guest today is none other than Stephen Heiner, founder of True Restoration and... Our goal today will be to ask Stephen how it all started. So, Stephen, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, Stephen, what can you tell us about yourself and how you came to authentic, traditional Catholicism? Well, I was born into the Novus Ordo, would say a conservative Novus Ordo family, such that we prayed the rosary every night. And we were jokingly known as Roman Catholic because we were always Roman around looking for the most conservative mm -hmm. parishes. At least my father was. When you're a child, you don't really know what's going on. You just right. know that we were sort of parish shopping. Mm -hmm. I was born in Singapore, and that's a fairly conservative country anyway. And so that wasn't as hard. But when we came to the United States, I remember my dad having to find two or three churches before we would settle in. But our family observed the Novus Ordo in, let's say, its most conservative form. I am grateful to say I've never believed anything heretical, although I certainly practiced odd things like communion in the hand or receiving the Eucharistic cup, as it might be called. Yeah. But I never believed anything contrary to the Catholic faith. For all I knew, I was Catholic mm -hmm. until my junior year of high school when I was talking with someone and... We were talking about Vatican II, and I said, oh, well, you know, they just changed the language. They just changed a few things. And he basically laughed in my face as if I had no idea what I was talking about. He said, well, okay, well, why don't you read some books and let's have this conversation again when you've learned something. Okay. And I did. I read one of the Radecki brothers. Well, the two Radecki brothers had written a book called What Has Happened to the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and yep. Open Letter to Confused Catholics by Archbishop Lefebvre. Yeah. And those two books, <clears throat> they opened the door to a world I had never glimpsed, which was a council which had substantially changed the teachings of the Catholic Church and a mass I hadn't even known about. I thought it was a translation mm -hmm. of the Latin into English, yeah. and the vestments were different, and maybe they lost the incense or lost some of the chant, but I was told that it was just a translation, mm -hmm. and I was told that the council just updated a few things. And I suppose that's a reasonable expectation of a 17-year-old, but the fact that my fellow 17-year-old challenged me to my face was an indication that, no, it's not beyond a 17-year-old to go and investigate these things, and I'm so glad he did challenge me. That opened up an entire world under my feet. It was disorienting, mm -hmm. to say the yeah, least. Yeah, so here we're talking about the 1990s. Yes. Right, under John Paul II? The Great. The don't, Great. Don't forget. The Great Apostate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So, and this would have been here in the United States that you yes. grew up. Yes. So I was in California at the time that I started to make these discoveries. And my family, having been conservative Novus Ordo and having sent me to a Norbertine boarding school, and the Norbertines were the ones who taught me about Latin and incense and Gregorian chant and the divine office and what canons were. And they prepped me for receiving this information, although I was somewhat resentful that they'd never told me. And oddly, they celebrated the traditional Mass themselves until 1981. Long after the enforcement had happened, they gave it up voluntarily, it seems. 
was they had permission to have it until the early 80s. I see. But they prepped me, but they hid things from me, I think. It's one of those don't upset the kids idea. And so when I started to ask them about these things, they said, well, yes, there is this traditional mass. There's a Father Johnson down in Huntington Beach, and you can go there. I was sent to the safe option, the adult. Yeah, yeah. And I was so enamored of the text of the Mass, I was just reading it every day, that I was so enthusiastic that my very first traditional Mass I served. So I was back there talking to the priest, and apparently they were short a server, so I went out there, and that's how I experienced my very first traditional Mass, with an old diocesan priest who had an indult, so-called, to celebrate it there in Huntington Beach. And I managed to convince my father to come. My mother wasn't quite sure. She said, I don't really know Latin. You know, Stephen, I don't know how it works. But my father and I had a wonderful experience. We managed to convince them to come. My mom was convinced when she came of the beauty just of that mass. And it wasn't a, we didn't have the best choir there, wasn't the largest church, but my mom sends something there that made her curious. And we shifted, let's say, to the adult. I continued to pour myself into this reading. With one Archbishop Lefebvre book, I got to others. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, what about the Society of St. Pius X? Yeah. And we ended up at one point, my father and I, again, only at this church in Arcadia, Our Lady of the Angels, which was up until that point, recently I hadn't known him, but Monsignor Donahue, part of that Father Wiccans, Abba Giardina generation of priests who were Mm -hmm. operating independently. And my father and I went. We were very impressed because this was a purpose-built traditional church. I think Mel Gibson money helped finance that church. And... My mom took three months to come over at that point because of schism and excommunications Mm -hmm, and these mm -hmm. sorts of things. But eventually we did, and I thought I was done. You thought you were done. We found the traditional mass. Here's a parish. My sisters, who were of age, were going to the school. And we had escaped the Novus Ordo, so I thought. Yes. Now, what about like catechism, for example? How did you, I mean, it's one thing to go to the traditional mass, but what materials were you using to study the faith? Or were your, I don't know if you have younger siblings or not. Yes, I have three younger sisters. Mm -hmm. And so they started going to that school. I was already at the end of high school and my other sister was at, at the time, a Legionaries of Christ school out in Rhode Island. Oh, And she got pulled out of that against her desires and sent to the school in St. Mary's, the academy. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, had her own, you could say, conversion experience in the sense of reading papal encyclicals, Mm -hmm. seeing the problems, and attending the traditional mass every day. So it was quite a switch to come from the Legionaries of Christ, one of the most Novus Ordo congregations you can imagine, like double, triple down on the Novus Ordo. And then going to SSPX. So my high school sister and myself, we were, let's say, in more advanced studies. And I was doing things like Baltimore Catechism Number 3 or Yoda Unum, getting into some of the more interesting historical situations. My younger sisters, I think, were getting the teachings at the parish school at the SSPX then. Okay, got it. And so just to get back real quick to California, what diocese was that? The Archdiocese of Los Angeles oh, uh, the what was where yeah. was where Arcadia was. We were in the Diocese of Orange, which was you know more conservative, but we had spent some time there and dealt with Cardinal Mahoney yes. of infelicitous memory. Oh, very much so. Yes. Okay, so you thought you had found all your answers. I did. And then what happened? So we sort of peacefully go through this time period. Life was perfect at that point, right? Right. You have fish fries on Friday. Of course. You've got school. You've got a parish. 
And that would have been 1997. And things just coast, you could say, until 2006. Mm-hmm. 2006, I was doing some writing for both The Angelus and The Remnant. But what launched me into getting to write for The Angelus was, at the time, controversial interview I did with Bishop Tissier de Mallory. And this starts with, I had wanted to create a blog because I had seen some traditional Catholic writing online. I thought, well, I could do that. I'm interested in Catholicism and I want to get involved in some of these discussions. And I thought a smart way to do that would be to interview clergy that were not available to the U.S. public. And Bishop Tissier de Malaray, French, was visiting the United States, specifically Colton, California. And I called in my very very poor French at the time, the seminary in Acone where he was, checked the time zones, asked in French if I could speak to him, then asked if he would speak English with me, and then said, would you be willing to be interviewed? Yes. Okay. So this is 2006. And during this interview, not only does Bishop Tissier take command of the interview at the end, I was asking, I wouldn't say the word superficial, but I was, I don't think I was confident enough as an interviewer to ask, let's say, really uncomfortable questions. I was asking things like, does the superior general of the SSPX have to be a bishop? And he said, no, in fact, it would be better if it were a priest Mm -hmm. uh, because we are just sort of sacramental machines in that sense. We're not regular bishops. And I get to the end of the year, I said, thank you for your time. He says, but you haven't asked any of the important questions. (laughs) And I said, what important question? He says, for example, the fact that Benedict XVI is a heretic. Ooh, that is rather, He he remains a heretic. And, you know, this is one of those stop the tape moments you think— okay, there's something big here. I was audio recording at the time, but I was taking all these transcription notes and it hadn't really hit me. It was just such a shocking statement. Benedict XVI is a heretic. And For him to volunteer that. Right, well, for him to take command of the interview and yeah. say, you haven't asked the questions, let me tell you what you should ask me about. <laughs> and then here it is. And during the interview, he said the word heretic to apply to Benedict XVI at least a dozen times, if not more. And... I wanted to be by the book, and so I put together a transcript of the interview. The very next day, he had flown off to Oregon already to do confirmations there. I There was this technology for some of our listeners who don't know called a fax machine, <laughs> and I faxed everything to him. He then marked it up. There were some grammatical changes here and there, but the main thing that he marked up was every time he said heretic, he changed it to professed heresies which is no substantial change. Someone who professes heresies is a heretic, but I think he wanted to soften it a bit, professed heresies. And then he inserted a huge quote from Introduction to Christianity, which he didn't have at hand to reference. Like he had made a reference during the interview, oh, he said this, and then he gave me the quote that he said. So he didn't say that in the interview, but he was willing to insert it in the transcript later on. Yeah. In any case, I was stunned. Yeah. How could the Pope be a heretic? And so... I go to the known authority, Father Anthony Chicada. Yeah. I make a phone call to this place called St. Gertrude the Great. I said, may I speak to Father Chicada, please? Yes, Father, I'm not a set of a contest, but I know that you are. And I just had a really shocking interview <laughs> with Bishop Tissier de Mallory of the SSPX, and he called Ben the 16th a heretic. Is it possible for the Pope to be a heretic? Ooh, great question to ask. And as you know, having had experience with Father Chicago yourself, in his inimitable style, he said, well, no. <laughs> and thus, Oh, I'm sure he loved that phone call. I mean, could you imagine a bigger softball? And I had no idea who this man was other than that he was, let's say, a representative of the Sedevacantist point of view. And I knew enough to call and try to 
Had you come across him in your research on the history of the SSPX, his Uh, name? To be honest, I hadn't done research on the history of the SSPX in the United States. I had known that there were some people who had come and gone, and I'd heard about some evil group of nine priests, but I really hadn't honestly investigated that. Mm -hmm. But somehow you always, when you research traditionalism, before long, you're going to come across the name Anthony Ciccata. There's just no way around it. Is that how you... I did. And I knew that traditionalmass.org existed. And I can't say that I'd read any of the articles because for me, Sedevacantism was a science fiction theory. (laughs) It wasn't even something that you would consider. It was dismissed. Oh, yeah. And the SSPX... Even more so back in those days. Sure. The SSPX is not an organization that encourages question asking. It's very much, this is the party line. Don't deviate from that. Yeah, here are frequently asked questions. Here's our FAQ, (laughs) um, and this is the approved answer. And I was in my early 20s. As I said, I thought I was done. Yeah. You know, I had the traditional mass, and my sisters were starting to marry men who were very established. Their families were very established with the Society of St. Pius X. So, yeah, so you had the best of both worlds, really, <laughs> right? You had your sacraments, you had... Just, had everything. Yes. You know, it's a very popular... This is one of Why the, rock the boat, Stephen? <laughs> this is one of the arguments the society will make all the time, is that look at our fruits. We are blessed by our Lord. Look at our fruits. And I would point out that Naturally speaking, the society's position is attractive. So it is attracting natural fruits. People want to have their children at a school. Religion is promoted. Mm -hmm. People like people dressing up as Carmelites or Benedictines. They like that. It's a popular position. So it has a natural appeal to it. To point and say that necessarily means those are supernatural fruits, that's a different story. This isn't to say that I don't think people are following what they consider to be a religious vocation. I'm certain there are some genuine vocations there. It's not my place. Right. To, You're just to, talking to objectively. Right. It's a very attractive position, naturally speaking, and financially speaking, it's also attractive because I can stay in the quote unquote official church, but you know, I have my preferences for this Latin Mass. And so they're able to Absolutely. gather from a very wide group of donors and benefactors. And when you have donors and benefactors, fruits become more mm-hmm. possible to germinate, you could say, so called fruits. Yes, yes, very much so. Uh, Plus, no one can take it away from them. Since they refuse submission to the man they insist is the Pope, um, then they're pretty much guaranteed to continue as they are. So that's why I said best of both worlds. You have, in a sense, you have all the benefits of Sedevacantism, right? You have the Mass and and the old catechism. Well, you have 62. Well, okay, fine. 62 With the Novus Novus Ordo Holy Week, On the other hand, you can always say, oh, well, we have a pope, we have a hierarchy, and uh, never mind, it's not a Catholic hierarchy. Yeah, look at his picture. It's in the vestibule. Exactly. We're we praying for the pope in the canon, right? We're not like those evil state of Acantis. Yeah, and you don't have any of the problems of the state of Acantis. So you have the best of both worlds, right? You don't have to explain where the pope is, where the next pope's going to come from, and so on. But, okay, so you called Father Chicada. That broke my universe. My universe was in that frame that you proposed. I have my Pope, as Bishop Dolman would say, you can have your Pope and eat him too, Mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. I was able to say, yes, Holy Father, Holy Father, Holy Father, and then terrible heretic, right? JP2, we love you, but he kisses the Koran. And so it was framed as a, well, you know, we disagree on these issues, but he's still the Holy Father, bad dad, all of the crazy, silly arguments that they always trot out. Yes, And so this was disturbing to my family because... And I say now with regret that I think because my family had momentum and we were moving from conservative Novus Ordo, if I just kept investigating, 
this could have been an entirely different conversation. Yes. But because I thought I was done. You had found your oasis. And I think, and I think a lot of, understandably, naturally speaking, a lot of traditional Catholics want to be done. It's not nice to have to search around and then let's say there's a split and something else happens. And we have to remember that we're not, in the Marine Corps, they always say, no one ever promised you a rose garden, right? This is a veil of tears. The idea that that we are entitled to settle down peacefully, that this wasn't given to, do you think the Catholics of the time of the English Reformation wanted that to happen? They wanted to be split from their neighbors and their families and have their priests executed and themselves be executed. The time that you are in is the time that our Lord chose from all eternity for you to be in. And there is some reason why we think that we're entitled to be settled down, but it's not realistic, not only for our times, but you don't have all the information you have. And that's why I always commend people who've come straight from the Novus Ordo into non-unicum set of acontism, because they skip the intermediary yes. steps, which can come mm-hmm. with, with mm-hmm. challenges and baggage. So my family was upset. They thought, oh, he's going through a phase. I think oh, they, yeah. <laughs> none of my family will be listening to this, but they still think I'm going through a phase. It's been since 2006. But what <laughs> Father Chikata was presenting to me and over and over he was so patient and i look back now i must have asked the cringiest dumbest questions but father chikata is like tech support for the young trad people would call (laughs) and i would say well what about this well what about supply jurisdiction well what about bishops tell me about these took bishops what does this mean and he would just patiently answer these questions give me more reading check out this book and I look back now, I thought that two years was a long time. From 2006, the the Bishop Tissy interview, to 2008, when sometime that year I realized I had accepted the Sedevacantus conclusion and started to face the consequences with my SSPX friends and family. But I didn't stop going to Mass because, well, you know, it's valid sacraments. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And again, knowing now... What a staunch opponent of attendance at the Unicum Mass as a set of a contest Father Chikata was, I again marvel at his patience with me. Another two years would pass before I would become a convinced non-Unicum set of a contest. And Father Chikata just worked with me the whole time. He didn't say, you're an idiot for going to the Unicum Mass. He could have. (laughs) And some I would tease him years later and say, Father, why didn't you hit me over the head with a baseball bat? But he pointed out that these things take time Mm -hmm. and you— For some people, it's a very fast movement. For other people, it's slower, as it was, I would say, two years of pondering that question is quite long, but I'm just speaking for myself. But that idea of Father Chikata is do the research, pray, reflect, ask people. And what I was doing with Father Chikata, I had done as a conservative Novus Ordo as well. I was asking questions of the Norbertines when I was there. Why is this? Why is that? And so Father Chikata just, and I was asking questions to Bishop Tissier, although he asked the serious questions. Yeah. And then when it came to Father Chikata, Father Chikata just kept saying yes when I asked him questions. I'll make time for you. I'll answer these questions as he did for many other people mm-hmm. uh, before me and after me. And so over time, that move from understanding set of acontism to non-unicum set of acontism started to develop into, well, if I'm having these conversations with Father, why don't we preserve them somehow so other people can benefit, so Father doesn't have to just keep saying this, and I can share my experience with Mm -hmm. other people? Yeah, great idea. And I had been doing this with SSPX clergy at the time that I was SSPX, so I was interviewing Bishop Williamson, I'd interviewed a couple district superiors of the SSPX. 
Yeah, I think you were. Weren't you kind of known to be the interviewer? I was. Well, I had picked it, as I say, I obviously didn't have a knack for it before Bishop Tissier. But after that, I felt empowered to ask questions. That interview caught the eye, was published in The Remnant. It caught the eye of Bishop Williamson, who, through intermediaries, asked to speak with me. That ended up getting me an interview gig in Argentina. So I flew down to meet him in Argentina, interviewed him. And at the time, the editor of The Angelus, Father Kenneth Novak, you would say was part of the hard line of the SSPX. So allowing Bishop Williamson to speak on the record, let's say speak freely in an official publication, the fact that Bishop Tissier had spoken freely in The Remnant, this started to cause problems. Who is this person? Mm -hmm. Why is he asking these questions? We want these things vetted. And one of the priests who went on to become a two-time U.S. District Superior, he thought that I had gone rogue. And then I sent him the signed facts from Bishop Tissier all approved with corrections. And he had thought that I had just tried to create trouble. I said, this is what Bishop Tissier wrote. And in fact, I hadn't even, I'd published his corrections. Yeah. So I morphed from interviewing SSPX clergy to set up a consul clergy. And again, Father Chikata didn't give me grief about it, thinking, why is this kid interviewing the SSPX and us at the same time? And it was a, you'd say, a transitionary period for Mm -hmm. me where I was trying to I don't think I realized at the time, but I was shedding my old ideas and I was entering the set of a contest worldview and I didn't do it overnight. It took time. Yeah. And so what time frame are we talking about currently? So as I say, 2006, Six. 2008 to accept the set of a contest position mm-hmm. and then 2008 to I'd say 2010, 2011 to become non-unicum set of a contest. And, and Father Chicago was alone in telling me that I had Catholic laymen telling me it was fine. I had some clergy telling me it was fine, but it felt strange. And I would get into arguments at Coffee and Donuts all the time with people Mm -hmm. because people started to figure out, oh, well, he's set of a contest. Mm -hmm. And they didn't seem to have any problem with it. But I think part of me thought, well, what am I doing here? I'm going to have arguments at Coffee and Donuts all the time unless I just refuse to talk about it. And at some point when I realized I couldn't go, it was a very sad day for me because... That meant I couldn't go to the traditional mass anymore. This mass that I'd escaped to so many years ago, 1997. So it was now 2011. And now, let's say, mass was going dark for me. Mm -hmm. I was living in Kansas City at the time. So the closest options were Omaha. The CMRI had a mass center there. And I would go there occasionally. But I didn't have any other options in Kansas City. Yeah. Did you lose friends? Yes, Yes. But I also took a conscious decision to cut that off because I knew there were going to be arguments all the time, that there was no way for us to surmount this obstacle. And people did the same to me. I understand that and I appreciate that, that when there's such a major theological gap, it's hard to continue a friendship because true friendships speak freely about things that matter. Mm -hmm. And if you spend your friendship consciously avoiding something that really matters to you, Mm -hmm. and in the end, there's no friendship at all. Yeah. You mentioned publishing. You mentioned publishing these things Father Chicago was saying. Where did you publish those? So there was the blog True Restoration, which had started in 2006 and was publishing, you could say, reflections of my own, but was a house for these interviews. Over time, it morphed into a home for video interviews. Mm -hmm. And I published Bishop Williamson's letters from the rector, which were monthly letters he would write as seminary rector. We collected them into a four-volume work. I got thrown into the deep end of publishing, in part because I was just enthusiastic. You know, Bishop Williamson had talked about this project. He said, well, I'll do it. 
It's like, well, do you know anything about publishing? No, I'll learn. <laughs> and I got thrown into the deep end. And as I say, as I transitioned from the SSPX worldview and interviewing SSPX clergy to understanding Sedevacantism, that project materialized for Father Chikata at a dovetail. He was working on his magisterial work of human hands, which every Catholic should read. And I thought to collect all of the work that had existed, the work that had convinced me into a collection of books as well. And that became the Anti-Modernist Reader, which Father edited volumes one and two. One has been published. Mm -hmm. We're working on publishing number two. Father had made most of the substantial changes to the text prior to his passing. So I worked with Father for, I think, 14 years altogether. And in video format, he wrote articles. But video was really what made the difference because those videos went onto YouTube and then people would watch them or it would be suggested by the algorithm, oh, you watch this video, you should watch this. Yeah. And the number of people I've met around the world who say to me when we have a chance to meet over coffee and donuts after a mass, and they say, YouTube suggested this Father Chikada interview and now I'm here. You know, that, yeah. those, that was so encouraging because it was the shortcut that I didn't have. That was the whole point of putting those interviews. I was asking these questions of Father. Why have Father repeated a hundred times? We can put it up here and have people watch it a thousand times, 10,000 times. Right. And yeah, I don't know how many tens of thousands of times many of those videos have been watched now. One of the favorite ones is the Aunt Helen set of a contest okay. interview. How to tell Aunt Helen. Yeah. And in that interview, I was just trying to bring up all the objections that were thrown at me by ex-friends from the SSPX and other places from the internet which, you know, some of them now, they sound so silly. We were talking the other day about the, well, you have to have a pope to consecrate Russia. Yeah. Therefore. Yeah. You know, is this, like, is this an argument? Yeah, so many people try to shortcut. And, uh, you know, you can sympathize, of course, with the struggle, right? They want an easy answer. They want a shortcut. And just say, well, instead of a consecration can't be true because what about the consecration of Russia? Well, it's not that simple, to say the least. Right. So you mentioned True Restoration now. So from, I guess, did you simply decide to call the blog True Restoration? I actually wanted Catholic Restoration in the beginning, but I'm sure you know that was taken. Bishop Sanborn had, <laughs> had, a, right. had a project called Catholic Restoration. And so I couldn't get Catholic Restoration. I didn't know it was Bishop Sanborn's project at the time, but I saw that it cross-posted some articles from traditional mass. Theology. I thought it was affiliated with somebody. I thought, well, I can't do Catholic Restoration. I thought of the larger cultural questions and say, well, apart from my Catholic restoration, there should be a true restoration of our society in general. I was starting to get clued into the bigger pictures of economics, government, questions of finance, how our world is run today, GMOs. I was just starting to get tiny bits of clues and realize, well, this restoration has to happen all across our society. And I thought, well, maybe true restoration. But it was pragmatic. I didn't get a vision. I didn't get some insight somewhere. I just was looking for Catholic restoration. It was taken, so I went with true restoration. Okay, as a name for the blog. Yes. Okay. And at that point, I'm sure you did not yet have any sort of vision of no. what was going to become of it. No, I just thought it would be a blog. Then the interviews came, and I thought, well, I'll publish these interviews on the blog. Mm -hmm. Then I realized at the time, so this is 2010, I thought video interviews will be compelling. This is before the heyday of YouTube. And I had video interviews, which could get cross-published on YouTube. And then in 2012, I'm a fairly early adopter of many things, and I had started to listen to these things called podcasts. Oh, my goodness, yeah. In, Back in those in, days. In, in 2011, 2012, and I thought, well, are there any traditional Catholic podcasts? Look, no. Yeah. wasn't anything on the landscape. And I thought, well, if I had help, I could do this. And so I contacted a couple people and I said, if you all help me 
And we take turns producing shows, meaning do the research, write the script, invite the guest, conduct the interviews. Then I think we could make a go of this. And we had totally envisioned it as a lay-run, lay-focused enterprise. We had no dream that we could invite clergy. We already thought they were quite busy. So the idea that clergy would appear on our shows and we had clerically-driven content, we just thought, we're lay people, let's talk about the things that lay people know, whether that was movie reviews or history, things that it's safe for lay people to talk about. We definitely had no idea that lay people would ever talk about theological matters. And that first season was a mixed success. I say mixed because we had our own technical issues, audio quality. I remember one time showing up, I don't know, 15 minutes late to an interview. The interview was already in progress. I sort of parachuted in because I had a work conflict. And yet many people in our clumsy format still wrote in, so this is great. I like this. And at some point, I think in that first season, we managed to get, I thought, well, why don't we have Father Chikata come on? And I had already established this working relationship with Father Chikata over a period of years. Well, that exploded in popularity. People were very excited to be able to call in Mm -hmm. to a radio show and talk with Father. And so that gave us ambition and impetus to move into the second season. And we vastly expanded the catalog. So instead of, we're just going to do one show a month, we thought, well, we're going to do one show every two weeks. And we're going to do these different series, much like, let's say, an NPR has different shows. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, we'll do a show doing this, and we'll have a show doing that. One of our earliest series was Clerical Conversations. And it was a precursor to a sort of new show, but I thought of it as Extended Coffee and Donuts, you get to chat with Father after Mass and the conversation goes somewhere and then you find out something you never found out before. But you could direct those conversations if you came to Father with a topic. Yeah. And so that exploded in popularity. But at this point now, we're starting to figure out, well, this is going to take more than just the three of us, the four of us, however many people were working at that yeah. time. But this could be something that could continue into a larger format. But we were still... I was paying for the hosting, we were paying for the website. Right, so and of course, you're I, doing this in your free time. Right, and I had created a separate business entity for True Restoration years ago because we were selling books and I had to pay taxes for those sorts of things, but it was never a profit enterprise. In fact, routinely lost money, so it was basically a hobby that I paid for. Mm-hmm. Right. But what happened with the radio was that accelerated. So I had to pay more and I was going into debt, but I... We're not talking tens of thousands of dollars. We're just talking hundreds of dollars at that point. But the idea was, I believe there's something here. Why don't we ask people for donations? Mm -hmm. And before you elaborate, how did you reach people? How were you able to get people interested in listening to your content? I mean, we're talking 2011-ish, right? right? I mean, it's not like you have all these hordes of traditional Catholics that know about the blog. You're right? right. Well, I wasn't really active on Twitter, and I don't know that we got word out by any other way other than people knew about the website and then would pass the website along. And, word of and, mouth. And spread. We had a big bump when a website known as Seattle Catholic oh, yeah. published the Bishop Tissier interview. And the Remnant obviously brought its own traffic. And then that brought a group of readers who abandoned me in droves when I went set of a contest. But there were still some of the people from the original iteration, let's say, of True Restoration. So I think it was just word of mouth. But the excitement of, hey, there's a radio show and it was being passed around, I think, led to that. And people had never really had a chance to hear Father Chikata in this format. He does very well in a, yeah. in, a, in a live format. And then I would get emails. I never knew he was so funny. I didn't know he was so friendly. They had pictured Father Chikata as this grim archpriest of set of a and very harsh. And it humanized him. And it 
made him an entity that people really could interact with. They could call him, they could talk right. to him. The whole thing was new, a new format. Podcasts were just becoming popular. And so I thought there's something here, but I don't know what it is. And I don't know if we can find a way to finance it because I certainly can't finance it indefinitely and I can't do it by myself. At the time, I had a tutoring company in which it was quite mature. And so I was free to pursue some of these things without having to worry about having my rent paid. But at the same time, I thought, there's something has to develop. And so we were constantly asking for donations. If it was worth a dollar to you, donate a dollar. And the receipts at the end of that second season, even though we delivered double, triple the content that we did in the first season were paltry, didn't even cover the hosting expenses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought, well, something has to change, but the feedback was better. The quality was better. We were starting to figure out how does audio work? How do we schedule? And at the time I was silly enough to think I could publish multiple shows per month with how crazy pre-schedules were. I'm so naive to think, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, every third Tuesday of the month, I'll record with Father Jakada. Yeah. Well, pre-schedules, if you don't know this, <laughs> like he has nothing else to do. They, they, they're very, very busy and things come up all the time or a water main breaks and recording schedules get interrupted. And we've moved over the years to something much simpler and less time sensitive. But I was silly enough to think, oh, we could pull this off as if we had the resources and money of a large production studio. But somewhere in the middle of that third season was when we made the switch to a subscription model. And it was a total gamble because we thought, well, if no one subscribes, we'll just call it a day and just say, hey, we tried. But if there's no one to pay for it, and we also, we wanted to pay our clergy. Yeah. We wanted to make right. donations to their apostolates. I always say the best place for your money is in the hands of the clergy. They will distribute it appropriately. And I thought, well, no one's given us donations we turn on this button and we lock a bunch of the content behind a closed door. Mm -hmm. So now you're saying from now on, yes, you can listen to it, but only if you're paying. Right. Well, I think at the time we were willing to give a 15-minute preview and we've since uh -huh. shortened it to five. But hey, listen, if you like it, keep listening and pay. Yeah. And overnight, a bunch of people came out of the woodwork who had never donated. But mm -hmm. suddenly when I took the content away, mm -hmm. they thought, oh, well, I really want this content. I guess I'd be willing to pay for yeah, it. Yeah. And so I introduced an idea. And today it's quite normal to pay for content. Very much on so, yeah. But in 2012, 2013, yes. we paying for content. Oh, yeah, no. In general, there is, seems to be this attitude that if it's on the internet, it has to be free. Right. And that's just not how the world works. And it's... Well, I think the movement towards paying for content has shifted so much now that that's no longer an argument. But I think in 2012, mm -hmm. 2013, there was very new the idea that I would pay for content on the internet. That was a strange idea. Digital content, mm -hmm. right? I wasn't sending them yeah. a book. I was just giving them access to a video file or an audio file. And that in itself, so you say there's this entitlement, I would argue among us traditional Catholics, there's a line of thinking that it's supposed to be free. Well, it's regarding Catholicism, so why are you trying to make money off the faith? And I tried to explain, I remember explaining this to an older gentleman who doesn't know too much about the internet, but I was trying to explain that every single thing on the website costs money. And the older generation doesn't know this. And I would even say elements of the Gen X generation, they don't know it unless they have an e-commerce background or they work with e-commerce websites. But Everything that you touch on a website costs money. So for those who don't know, listeners, first of all, there is the real estate. So you have to buy a site. You have to buy your name and you have to pay for that every single year. There's no lifetime purchase of a website. You can buy it for a number of years if you'd like, but essentially there's a deed to your land. And then there's the soil or the foundation of your website, which is your host. You have to pay them. 
And so for nobody doing anything, so if we don't sell a thing, I have to pay every year for the real estate and then I have to pay for hosting. And if you don't know what hosting means, it means that every time someone visits your site, you get to pay money. Yeah. Whatever infinitesimal amount, it could be fractions of a cent. But the more people that visit your site, the more you get to pay. And the way that major large news aggregators pay for this is they have ads. So their advertisers pay for that traffic. Right. But we, first of all, we are a set of a contest. We're not popular among people who would, who would offer advertising. Yeah. But secondly, I didn't know what we could offer them. You know, what we say, give us $30 a month or a year, and I'm going to give you this amount of traffic. We had no idea at the time. It didn't stop us from trying, but that model didn't really work. Then add an e-commerce portion. So if you sell books, you then have to have what is called a cart. People don't realize that when it says add to cart, that is a piece of software. Now you can either be a software whiz, write your own software, and then periodically update it yourself to match changes in browsers and technology, or you buy, as many people know, software as a service, SaaS, you buy carts that get updated by teams of nerds whose entire job it is to update software. Well, people don't realize if you go and browse the website, you've cost us money, and that's fine. That's great. That's the reason we exist. Right. Then you click add to cart. That cart costs us money every month. Once you've added that to cart and then you check out, we have to pay a payment processor. Yes. That costs us money. Then the book is pulled from our warehouse. It costs us money to warehouse that book. Storage isn't free. We mm-hmm. then have to pay the person to pack that inside a box. We have to pay for the box. We have to pay for the tape. We have to pay for the wrapping paper. Mm-hmm. Once that's it, we charge you for the postage, but we still have to pay for that postage and print it. We have to have the labels. All of that gets sent out. Mm -hmm. And you have to buy your inventory ahead of time. Correct. And I have to account for that inventory with my accountant for depreciation, Mm -hmm. cost of goods sold, and then I have to file taxes. All of those costs, those are just involved in someone buying one book. And so the idea that we're making tons of money, people don't realize what it takes simply to deliver a web page to you. It costs us money to deliver a web page. When you view a web page, that costs the website money. And so as we've always said, we're not in it to make money. We were asking questions and we wanted to share that information. And then over time, we thought, well, we want to give money to the clergy if there's going to be any money from this. And to this day, True Restoration, our single largest line item, stipends paid to the clergy per episode that they appear in. That's yeah. our single largest expense. every, And we want to increase that even more. That's our two main purposes. One, a high-speed knowledge extraction device. So we take information out of our priest's head and we put them into digital format forever, or as long as this world exists. And then we take some of the funds, the means to preserve that, and we give it to our clergy. And the clergy do what they wish with them. But that's what we've grown to, and we evolved to that. That quantum leap came for us with podcasting, and then moving from the donation platform to a subscription platform, which has worked for us over the years. And sometimes we spun off very successful shows. So Novus Ordo Watch sponsored Francis Watch for years. And that was such a wonderful funnel for people because a lot of people these days, particularly not in the JP2 or Benedict the 16th days, but in the days of Jorge Bergoglio, people come to Zedivacantism from shock. They hear that there is no Catholic God. They hear that adultery is a valid path. The covenant with the Jews has never been revoked. And and then they come to something like Francis Watch, which is addressing those concerns blow by blow with Catholic clerics who are addressing the issue. And then maybe they go further. Right. Okay. Excellent. And so how many people do you have on staff? 
at True Restoration? Or how many people are working for True Restoration? So there are eight other owners, most of whom have active departmental roles. So they're either in charge of social media or they're in charge of press, so publishing books, fulfillment, or Mm -hmm. they're in charge of audio production, so they master and mix our episodes. They plan future seasons. Our IT department, which is probably the most crucial one at True Restoration, making sure that things don't break when AWS has an outage, that we have a backup plan. If we ever get canceled, Alex Jones style, that we have a backup server to move to. Oh, excellent. So we have different departments who handle different things. And so there's, let's say, eight or nine of us in an ownership position of whom six are in working ownership positions. So we're in charge of different departments. And then there's maybe another three or four people who are writing articles, book reviews, helping out in some unsung way behind the scenes. And without them, we couldn't function. And I've seen a little bit behind the scenes and I can tell there is a lot of work that goes into making true restoration happen. And the fact that you produce content regularly on a schedule, right, is really impressive. And so what is the current pricing? I mean, it's not terribly expensive or anything. No, I think we always thought about, well, what is the secular world charging so that people's brains are primed to accept it? And I think at some point Netflix was charging $7.99 or $9.99 a month. And we thought about it in annualized portions. And we thought, well, some of it's audio, some of it's video. And it ended up with the price that has been in place for five years now, which is $150 a year for annual subscription that gives you access to the entire catalog. Mm-hmm. And then- We thought there were some people who only want access to that season. Like once they listen to something, they're done. They're never going to go back to it. Fine. They only want access to that season. We created a monthly membership and that's $9.99 a year. And that gives you access to the current season only. You don't get access to the archives. Mm -hmm. And then as a sort of gateway drug, we created a (laughs) a digital membership in which people get access to seasons. At this moment, seasons five and six. Previous seasons were generously sponsored by Nova Sorto Watch. Shameless plug. And- (laughs) Thank you. And so people can listen. There's hundreds, literally hundreds of episodes of Restoration Radio free and available thanks to that generous sponsorship. But the digital gives you seasons five and six. So it gives you a little bit more of a taster. You know, we're in season 11 now. So once people get there, they may abruptly have a series stop because it continues into season eight or nine. And, right. and okay, well, you know, I have to subscribe to the name. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so those are our three membership levels, sort of an entryway. I'm interested, but I don't want to commit yet. It's at 35, mm-hmm. maybe it's 75 now. We've raised it over time as we've given more access to digital members. So there's a $75 one-time fee, and that gives you access to six seasons. Then there's a $9.99 monthly fee or a $150 annual fee. It's an immense amount of content. Yeah, right? we're, we're moving towards episode 1,000 at some point in, uh-huh. the next, in the next year or two, and that's astonishing, really. Roughly how many episodes of content do you produce in a month, in a year? So when you say produce, they're recorded. We've moved to a model now where we're recording months and years ahead of time because we're working on content that is evergreen. So you don't need to make topical comments on in a sacred scripture show. Right. right? We're just talking about things that are always going to be there. Mm-hmm. So we can record those ahead of time. Oh, then good. that goes to the post-production team. Mm-hmm. They go in, they edit out any ums and ahs, any coughs, and then it goes to the mastering team. This is all nerdy audio stuff. Right. I, but it all has to be done. Yeah. And a lot of well, times... I mean, Nova Sorta Watch has to do all that stuff by themselves. Uh, of course. And I'm very grateful to have a team that does that and does it so well. Mm-hmm. And so... Let's say in any given month during the season, because the post-production team takes some time off as well at the end of the release season. In any given month, there's maybe 10 or 15 pieces of audio in production. And then there's other projects that we're working on as well. 
and they may be working on the next season, actually. So we try to have all the audio delivered to the production team at the end of the year before it comes out. So all of the content coming out in 2022, we wanted to get that to the production team at the end of 2021. And we were mostly Fantastic. successful, I would say 85%. But that meant one year we had to double up. Yeah. In, in order to get oh, right. there, one oh. year we had to do both. Yes. And the production team did an amazing job. And so now yeah. we're officially a year ahead. And so how much gets published? I guess that's what I should have asked. So we have, we would say we have a temporal cycle and a sanctoral cycle <laughs> of, of episodes. We have a temporal cycle that always is the same. So we always have This is Catholicism, which is a catechism show. Or we always have a show about Our Lady. Or we always have a show about sacred scripture. That never changes. But then we have a sanctoral cycle, which changes based on for example, I've really been throwing myself into Father Lean lately, and so we have Why the Cross is coming out as a series. Fantastic book. With Father Trauner, and we had a really wonderful time. Father Trauner hadn't known about him, obviously, because he's an English speaker, and so he's not necessarily known in German-speaking circles. And then we continued on, and this is actually many seasons away now. So Father and I recorded lots of episodes of Why the Cross. That's going to premiere over the next two years. We're working on stuff that's going to come out in three or four years, Progress and Mental Prayer by Father Lean. Okay, so, another great book. Yeah. So we were working on Yoda Unum. We worked on the councils where we went through every council of the church, which was a fantastic experience for me. I think this is one of the privileges of being a host is I learn the things that I want to hear. And when I hear about what did the Council of Florence really do? What was Trent? And realizing this is a reflection that has stayed with me long after the show finished was we live in a post-Tridentine Catholicism and we think that this is normal, but it's only how the church has been for the last 500 years. Mm -hmm. If you look prior to Trent, it was, I want to say the Wild West, but it was very, very different how the church operated in countries. You'd have the Gallican rite of the church that had their own feast days, their own fast. The fact that we have the Rogation days, that wasn't a Roman imposition. It came from the Gallican church. They were the ones who had the Rogation days, and then the Roman church adopted it. Interesting. Where we're in a period in which Rome puts things out to the, yeah. to the general. It's yeah. it, it doesn't happen as much. We don't have those national and local expressions bubbling up to Rome. We're in a much more centralized time in church history. History, which is great. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm saying that that's a different experience. Even seminaries, people forget that prior to Trent, the seminary experience was not at all universal and people could apprentice with a priest for their local parish priest for a few years and then go to ordained. Interesting. There weren't canonical yeah. rules on how long you had to study or what course of studies you had to have. Mm -hmm. 1500 years of church history was like that. Mm -hmm. And we're in a time period in which we reference a council that was so magnificent and ordered things so well that we're privileged to be able to look at that as a standard. But it wasn't like that prior to Trent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of things were quite different. For example, in the entire first millennium, there was no Holy Rosary yet. Mm. That was not, you know, it wasn't revealed until the 13th century. Right. So, to us, that's completely unthinkable. Catholicism right. without the rosary. Absolutely. Um, right? There was no Lent for the first few hundred years, for example. Well, you and I both have a scapular on. Mm -hmm. you, that is just taken for granted. Well, of course you have a scapular. Well, yes. 1,500 years before, yeah. no scapulars. Of course, there were other devotionals. And I always feel bad when I read the liturgical year by Dom Granger and realize what chumps we are. By yes, comparison, you course, know, yeah. no meat or eggs. You know, you think you're quite good for going without meat. Try going without yeah. eggs. Try going without butter. Yes, right. And also, we have the first Sunday of Lent coming up as we're recording this. And, you know, we hear about our Lord in the gospel for that Sunday, our Lord fasting in the desert. Well, believe me, those 40 days and 40 nights, it wasn't a two small meals and one full meal. <laughs> right, there's no Panera in the desert. No, 
No. So we've definitely have a lot less strict fasting regulations now that we used to. And even though, I mean, you know, of course you can't compare it to the Novus Ordo, but when you're coming from the Novus Ordo, you think, oh my goodness, those traditional Catholic regulations, they're so strict. Right. Honestly, Lent is basically an inconvenience to the body. It's, <laughs> it's right? I mean, I'm, as I'm talking about the strict, like, what's required of you by the church's law. It's not a lot. No, not it at all. It really isn't. And it was for longer. And it's necessary. I would say that, in a sense, we need it. We need to be reset. Christmas oh, yes. Christmas can get excessive. You know, how many times you say, well, it's Christmas, and, you know, have another piece of cake. Yes. And, whatever. Oh, yes. and, and of course, the church does want you to celebrate. Yes. But for some reason, that just keeps extending and keeps yes. extending. And that's why we can now say, well, it's Lent. <laughs> right. So... Yeah, very true. And so all these discussions, whether it be Lenten practices, the liturgy, our church history, these are all the things that we're interested in at True Restoration. And so, as I say, we're quite boring. We leave it to the Novus Ordo watchers of the world to keep us updated <laughs> on, on current stuff. But we do the old, boring stuff. So we do the stuff that I was supposed to be taught in Catholic school, but I wasn't because I was taught about theology of the body or whatever else you were taught about in so-called Catholic schools. And we're essentially trying to do remediation. Mm -hmm. Here's the things you should have learned. And also bring in some things that are really exciting, as I say, the Father Lean books, learning about the councils. Romano Amerio's Yoda Unum has been a really fun series for us to do, in part because he does such a good job of eviscerating the Novus Ordo and then just goes along with it. And you can see, like, here is someone who's very learned, very thoughtful, and yet he still manages to go along with this. Yeah. And so it is not as straightforward as people would like to think. Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't beat themselves up about it. As I said earlier in the interview, if it takes some time, if you're still figuring this out, be patient with yourself. And as Father Chicago was patient with me and with many other people, and just keep studying the issues, you will come to the proper conclusions. Yes. You know, personally, for me, what has helped a lot is immersing myself in the literature, in the pre-Vatican to mm. Catholic literature. Mm. And, you know, the more This is what you, Catholicism sounds like. Yes. Mm. And then there is really no question with regard to identifying the Novus Ordo Church as a false religion in the Vatican. It is not Catholicism. So, Stephen, you've given us a lot of information, a great look behind the scenes of true restoration. Do you want to take us through what a typical day looks like for you? So all of us at True Restoration have jobs or businesses that we run. So even the department heads, they're not necessarily running, they're not working with True Restoration issues every day, unless, let's say, in our fulfillment department, things probably get bought and sold every day. And so we're part-time at True Restoration in the sense of dealing with things. Now, as the head of the company, I'm chatting with department heads throughout. I'm handling other issues behind the scenes. I might be composing my own article but I usually set aside a few hours each week to work on true restoration issues. And that will usually be on a software called Slack, which those of you who are unfamiliar with remote working, there are different models, Monday, Microsoft Teams, Slack, in which you and your team can communicate and send files and photos. And we share funny photos and memes just like anyone else. But a lot of times we're sharing documents or sharing positions and okay, how is this going to be worded? When is this sale going to happen? What do we think of this book? Should we sell it? And one of the things which I'm sure Novus Ordo Watch deals with as well is we get a lot of emails from people. Yeah. Everything from, can I get directions to Starbucks, to spam, to, you know, you're heretics because you don't, you, you accept baptism of desire, yeah. whatever emails you get, they have to be answered. If you have an open email box, you have to answer them. We have an entire department. All they do is answer questions. And so... I'm sorry, why would people ask you for directions to Starbucks? <laughs> <laughs> who, know, who, who knows why these people <laughs> ask these questions? But the most bizarre things you could possibly imagine, they have been asked. 
And what's nice is we've created an index now so we can just copy and paste our answers. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And we, sometimes we have a direct handoff to clergy because as lay people, there are things that we're not competent to talk about. And you say, here, we're going to pass your address on or mm-hmm. here is father's address. He's given permission based on the situation you outlined. You can email him and we'll pull out of this. It's not our business. This is a confidential matter and you should talk to father about it. And... All of those things fall under my purview as supervising the departments. Everything that each department is doing, I'm having to check with the department heads on a monthly basis. They give a report. I review that report. I ask follow-up questions, as I alluded to earlier, what if we get canceled? So I'll say, well, have we figured out what the backup host would be? Or how are we doing with this software? Is the way for us to upgrade this or cost save? Sometimes if you pay for software as a service a year ahead of time, you can economize. And so we're always looking to run leaner. And that way that leaves us more money to either dedicate to our clergy or leftovers we can donate places we support like Novus Ordo Watch or the Sisters of St. Thomas Aquinas or the seminary or St. Gertrude's where we want to be able to send extra funds. And we can only do that if we economize. And it doesn't take that much effort to economize, just audit your work, look at where you can save money and save that money. So it sounds like it's very much an enterprise, not in the sense of making a lot of money, but in just the complexity of it all. Yeah, it takes work. To Departments, pull sure. And people need to be paid for their work. They do. And not only injustice, but because it encourages them to continue to move forward with their own professional development. I think sometimes people can forget that participating in a small business and going through the ups and downs of entrepreneurship is a personal development opportunity. And then those people have gone on, some of them, some of the owners of True Restoration, we've gone on to start other businesses together because we've had that experience with each other and we know We've had great satisfaction. And, and it's such, a, now I take for granted that I work at a company entirely Catholic, that, you know, we start and end our meetings with a prayer. We have common things that we can joke about, you know, memes that we can share that we all get and that we're of one heart and one mind. It doesn't mean that we all agree with each other on everything. We have, for example, some owners who accept the thesis, some who don't. We don't have a position on these things at True Restoration as a company. But the point is that we're all Catholic, we're all oriented around the faith, and Mm -hmm. we're building something for the faith. And that's such an exciting endeavor. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, I think, um, you know, Catholics should be excited to be able to make a modest contribution to enable that, to make that happen. You know, if you think about the many other things we constantly pay money for. You know, here's Pum- something. Pum- pumpkin spice lattes? Yeah, pumpkin spice lattes, exactly. We don't think about spending seven, eight, ten bucks or more on this or that, whatever snack or leisurely activity, which are also legitimate, of course, in themselves. Why not spend a little bit of money to do something for your soul? I appreciate that sentiment, and thank you for thank you for it just, it's, teeing up that softball for me. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it really does, you know, it's an attitude thing. Right, You have to understand, hey, this is a great service being rendered to me. I find this useful. I find this is important. This can help me reach a blessed eternity. Is this not worth a few dollars for me? So I think if we all approached it with that mindset, it won't be too difficult to say, yeah, this is worthy of my support. And thankfully, we're all able to make it work. Yes, I'm very grateful for that. Great. Do you see any big changes ahead for you for True Restoration? Well, we've recently gotten into a controversy with the CMRI, and that has, let's say, caused some, I don't know if it'll be lasting, but it has caused some challenges for some of our supporters. But we think it's very important to underline 
that there's just a certain baseline. Not everybody has to do everything in the same way, but we think it's a reasonable and acceptable baseline that a non-unicum should be a standard that people should not be encouraged to go to the unicum mass, basically mass with the SSPX in necessity, whatever that means. Lay people will have the broadest possible interpretation. If they're told they can go in necessity, why not go every Sunday? So we've really very much laid down a marker on that issue and then on adjudication of marriage annulments, which would apply to reducing a subdeacon to the lay state. Unfortunately, those people are just stranded at the moment. We don't have a government of the church. The government of the church would normally handle these legal cases. So as far as the future, we've laid down that marker and we strongly believe in that. And who knows what will develop. I would hope that over time, the non-unicum stance of set of becomes the overwhelming standard stance. It is not at the moment. I think it is a minority stance within the movement and there are problems there. Can you briefly explain for those who are not familiar with the terminology here, what is an unicum mass? So this is a mass generally said by groups like the SSPX or the Fraternity of St. Peter the Indult in which the person that they consider the Pope is named in the canon of the Mass. If you read in your Missal, you'll see early on in the canon, we pray for the Pope, which we would normally do if we had one. But when you don't have a Pope, you don't say that portion of the canon. You mm-hmm. just, you, mm-hmm. you skip over. And so that's what you would do. If you don't believe there's a Pope, why would you mention not just someone who's not a Pope, but someone who is one of the greatest destroyers of the Catholic faith known in church history? Why would I mention him? It's a silly thing to say, oh, you don't pray for your enemies. Of course you pray for your enemies, but you don't pray for them as head of the Catholic Church. That is a privileged position in the canon. That's not reserved for, quote-unquote, praying for your enemies. It's reserved for praying for the sovereign pontiff. And for the orthodox believers of the Catholic and apostolic faith. That's what it says. Right, that's what it says. Now, just to be clear, though, the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen does not offer Mass unacum. No, no, they don't. Okay, I just want to be clear about that. Thankfully not. But, But when they are not in town or when their priests are away, it's uneven because there are some of their priests who are very staunch, non-unicum, and have gone on the record as such. But other of their priests say, what if I'm not in town, you can go to an unicum mass, which is essentially saying going to the SSPX. Okay. So you're saying that some of the CMRI priests are saying it is legitimate for a Catholic to assist at a mass that is offered in union with Francis. Yeah, who am I to judge? If there is no Sedevacanus mass available. It's essentially a who am I to judge framing of that question. And it's framed as it's not a mortal sin, as if that's how we go through life. Like, oh, should I do this? Well, is it a mortal sin or not? Well, if it isn't. And so if you tell lay people, well, it's not a mortal sin if you go. Well, what's a lay person going to say? Well, Father said it's not a mortal sin. That means I can go. So they've interpreted that as having done their duty. Well, we told people that it's not a mortal sin. Well, what's the effect of telling people that it's not a mortal sin? It means that they can go. And that proof is evident in the shoulder-shrugging attitude that many set of contest have when you bring this mm-hmm. up. But you go to mass with the SSPX, and they don't see cognitive dissonance there. Not only the fact that, okay, let me follow your argument for a moment that you're just trying to satisfy your Sunday obligation. You're going to hear crap theology. You're going to hear crazy ideas, and then you're going to have to come home and explain to your— Recognize and resist theology. You're going to have to explain to your kids why father was wrong. Now you're programming your children that priests can be wrong. We had Mm -hmm. that horror Mm -hmm. show. For those of Mm -hmm. us who came from the conservative Novus Ordo, Mm -hmm. we already had that growing up. We don't want that again. Mm -hmm. And this idea that in an emergency, dot, 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 or in your need, I know what it feels like to go without mass. I made that decision to become non-unicum and to go without the mass for years. And it's a horrible, painful, terrible thing. So I'm not speaking from theory. I'm speaking from experience. But you won't have this theological inconsistency of, I don't believe this man is the Pope, 
but I'm in a building with a bunch of other people who recognize him as such, and I am putting myself in union with a prayer in which he is named as the head of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Who in, am I? Who in am the I, heart of the mass. Who am I kidding? Mm-hmm. And then people just say, well, I'm just here for the sacraments. I'm like, well, you could go to the Greek Orthodox for the sacraments. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of them haven't been infiltrated. But if the question is validity, why not go to the Greek Orthodox? That's the same line of thinking that I see. That if you just want to validate, I'm just here for the sacraments. If that's your yeah. argument, well go, well, go get sacraments for the Greek Orthodox. It's an emergency situation. Uh, okay, yeah. I mean, I would say that certainly, and I'm not for the Unakum Mass personally, but I guess one could say that, well, the Greek Orthodox have been declared schismatic and heretical, you know, whereas that is not the case with Society of St. Pius X. I'm sure, just saying you're, someone but you're, make you, that but you're, you, but you're permitted that canon law stipulates that you can approach an excommunicated cleric for sacraments in grave necessity. Mm-hmm. So I'm just making the point that people are saying, oh, I'm just going for the sacraments. I'm blocking out my ears and all this. Yeah. Is, this is a well, crazy This is crazy thinking. Yes. That you're just going there, you're going to treat them like a sacramental ATM, and then you're getting out. Like, you're not going to hear anything. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be influenced by anything. That's just not how real life works. Yeah. Now, I wonder if some clergy who will, you know, be tolerant of others approaching or rather attending an unakum mass, if they simply figure, well— it is the lesser evil to tolerate, like a greater evil could be. And we're not talking about like, oh, one Sunday there is no Mass. We're talking about, for example, a family that otherwise will simply not be able to go to Mass except maybe once or twice a year. And I'm not saying that they should go to the Unaku Mass. I'm just wondering if one could make the argument that it is tolerable to not make an issue about that family attending the Unaku Mass rather than them possibly losing the faith, for example. So, you know what, maybe this is something that you may want to have a separate episode on and True Restoration would be an interesting discussion, I think. <laughs> well, it right? certainly brought up some interesting discussions in the article series online. And yes, obviously, it would. it's not something we can shoehorn into today's episode. But I do think that, just to answer your point briefly, if you can go once or in a pinch, mm-hmm. why can't you go all the time? Well, because there is no necessity for you to go to Mass if you have no Mass to go to. Right. And And we have examples of Christians over the centuries who've been deprived of Mass for long periods of time, and they managed to keep the faith. Mm -hmm. And that you can go to heaven without the Mass, but you can't go to heaven without the faith. And obviously the faith is fed by the Mass, and it's a wonderful blessing. But we know Catholics all around the world who live in places where they don't even have access to Unicum Masses. Mm-hmm. So then the question, will they go to the Novus Ordo? Bishop Williamson says it nourishes my faith. <laughs> so yes. it, that's the road it leads down. Well, I need to quote unquote nourish my faith. And we have access to streaming masses now. There's all sorts of technology mm-hmm. in which obviously you can't be there, but you're united in spirit when it's happening right now. You can see it on your screen and you can pray. That didn't happen before. You couldn't hear a sermon from a traditional priest who's saying that mass right now and you can observe it. And what is time and space to God? When you're watching a streamed Mass, you can unite yourself with those people right at that moment. There used to be a prayer, I unite myself with all the Masses that are going on in this world. Well, guess what? You now have the technology to see those Masses going on elsewhere in the world, and you can participate in that. So I think streaming is a a great leap forward to console those Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. who otherwise would not. Because as we know from Catholic teaching, the majority of the graces that are on offer— ex operantis graces, what you bring to the table. Mm-hmm. And so if you're devoted, whether it's streaming or whether it's just spiritual communion or house, you can get those graces on offer. The idea that, well, I can only save my soul if I have access to Mass all the time. Or, you know, if I don't get to Mass on Sunday, I'm going to lose my soul. I, I don't know what your faith is made of, but you need to check Catholic history and see what other Catholics have to survive through. 
they did not have access to Mass every Sunday, and somehow they made it to heaven. Don't know how, but if you read, you'll find out. Yeah. Stephen, thank you. That was a lot of information. Thank you for giving us some insights into true restoration. Is there anything you'd like to add? No, I'm just hopeful for the young people who are coming up now who remind me of my time with Father Chikata and they're asking great questions. And as I say, they're coming with so much more information, in part because of Bergoglio, how radical he is, but in part because there's just more and more information out there. And there's Twitter and there's other people who are creating podcasts and creating videos now. And I think it's great. I think there's more information out there and people can learn more and nourish their faith and save their soul. And that's exciting. Perfect. Stephen Heiner, thank you very much for coming on this program. And thank you to all listeners. This was the flagship show on member-supported Restoration Radio. Thank you very much for listening. Signing off, I'm Mario Dirksen, guest host for this particular episode. Please tune in again next time.